Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Hey, everybody. We've got a uh, great one today, you know, for a change. Austin Goolsby. Uh, it's his third time on. And this time, this time we think he's going to be good. I'll go that I'll go that far out on the limb. No, he's great. I have to say, we we, we discuss uh, uh, Bill Back better, and uh, I just gotta admit, I am uh, getting a little impatient uh, on a whole host of things. And when I uh, say impatient, I mean pissed off. I'm really pissed off at the Supreme Court. Uh, Amy Coney Barrett vociferously denying uh, the idea. The Supreme Court is partisan and doing it at the McConnell Institute at the University of Louisville uh, with McConnell sitting right there. I've got a uh, video coming out on my YouTube channel on just this subject. You can get it at uh, my Al Franken YouTube channel. Anyway, if this is a bipartisan court, why was Amy Coney Barrett seated on the Supreme Court nine days before the 2020 election. This is not a bipartisan court. It's a stacked court. McConnell blocked Garland because he said you couldn't see the justice on the court nine months before a presidential election. And again, Amy Coney Barrett uh, was seated nine days before the election. Gorsuch was a political operative inside the uh, Bush White House. Kavanaugh was a political operative inside the Bush White House. Then there's this uh, big lie I'm uh, kind of pissed about. Uh, Two-thirds now of Republicans believe Trump won the election, or at least they say they do. Look, either the election was stolen or it wasn't, and it wasn't. And it's just sad to see my former colleagues uh, buy into this. Chuck Grassley uh, embracing Trump in Iowa uh, this past week. You know, uh, if you won't risk your political career on principle when you're 87 years old, you're probably never going to do it. That's that's what I figure. Uh, this is the biggest threat to our democracy, and... All of this is one way of getting to the fact that we are in the most dangerous place our country has been in since the Civil War. And we've, we Democrats just got to get our shit together. Democrats in the Senate have to get 
their shit together. We, we've got to pass this Build Back Better legislation and do it as soon as possible so we can deliver the benefits that Americans want and need on education, infrastructure, on daycare, the whole host of stuff. Because if these programs don't get passed and start kicking in and start delivering for folks soon, we're going to get in trouble keeping our majorities. There's no reason for voters to return our majorities unless we are giving families the stuff that's in these bills. Universal pre-K, less expensive pharmaceuticals, free expansion of of Medicare benefits, uh, family leave, addressing climate change. Just That's just some of the stuff that's in this bill. And we discussed this. I discussed this with Austin Goolsby. Uh, Austin is uh, it's his third time on the podcast. As I said, Austin was the chair of the uh, President Obama's Council on Economic Advisors and is now a professor of economics at the University of Chicago. So let's see if Austin can keep up with me. I'm just worried. We have the White House. We have the House. We have the Senate. Democrats, that is. It's no time to be on recess. We're on recess as I speak. Because once we get Build Back Better done, we have to move on to the Freedom to Vote Act, the Voting Rights Act that we, uh, I had Mark Elias on about. It, this is a great bill. It's a bill about saving our democracy, addressing all the anti-democratic provisions that have passed around the country, provisions that would allow state legislatures to overturn election results by real election officials. This is how we turn into Hungary or, or, or worse. Unless Democrats in the House and especially the Senate get it together soon, they're on their way to becoming the Weimar Republic. Uh, today, Austin will be uh, helping us understand what is in the Build Back Better Act and how crucial it is that we get this thing done and let the American people see the importance of having a political party in power that believes what Paul Wellstone believed, and that is that we all do better when we all do better. This this is a consequential time. Don't sit it out. Don't sit it out. Now, don't be confused when we start out. We, We start on a bit of a light note, but I hope this will help you understand where we are at this propitious moment We got a great one today, you know, for a change. Do you ever feel like you're settling? For your foundation, that is. Maybelline's new Instant Age Rewind Eraser Foundation doesn't settle into fine lines and wrinkles. With SPF 20 and moisturizing pro-vitamin B5, this foundation not only provides medium coverage and a natural finish, but also protects and nourishes your skin. And the best part? The blurring sponge tip applicator makes application a breeze. Say goodbye to cakey, uneven foundation and hello to a flawless, radiant complexion. Try our new foundation today and see the difference for yourself at Amazon.com slash Instant Eraser Foundation. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. 
just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Austin Goolsby. Okay, now... <laughs> how old were you when people stopped making fun of your name? <laughs> never. What is my age today? That, that never happened. Did you, were you a fan of Second City TV? Yeah, oh, yeah. Definitely. It just feels like a Joe Flaherty... Yes. Character yes. Austin yes. Goolsby. With, I, I've, um, had, I've had it's a great Halloween name. Halloween it? is coming. It's yeah, Goolsby. My costume should just be a hello. My name is and 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 I'm I'm set. I think it's Dracula um, and hello. My name is <laughs> the thing about the Goolsbys is they've been in the U.S. for a very very long time. They fought in a Revolutionary War. Oh, it's before, before that, Ellis Island where they would have changed before, your name. Before Ellis Island. <laughs> and, and our people mm -hmm. disproved. There are some moments in history where it seems like ancient Athens or the founding fathers, everybody was brilliant and famous and, and accomplished so much, even though there weren't that many people. You know, ancient Athens, there were like 100,000 people lived in ancient Athens. And it's, one of them was Plato and one was Socrates, you know, and... The Goolsbys prove that there were just regular schmoes all the time. You know, they, they were there. They just didn't do anything. They, and they, they went through and in the, they were mostly illiterate. So the way that our Goolsbys got spelled with a B-E-E -E instead of a B-Y is the person taking the census asked them what's their name. And they told him their name and then they, they just wrote it down. And you see the person, each census, his name is changing just by how the census takes So it. when did uh, your family learn to read and write? <laughs> I, don't, <laughs> I don't know. Well, you've done very well uh, with that heritage anyway. Uh, you're at the uh, University of Chicago, which is uh, in, in the heralded economics department there, a professor. I really want to talk about Build Back Better, what's in it, and the economic headwinds heading into it now. People are going like, oh, well, the supply chains are screwed up, and the gas prices are high, and there's a lot of inflation. Am I wrong? Isn't that a result of success? I mean, isn't that a result of the COVID relief bill or that got things yeah, going? Yeah, maybe. Look, uh, th thanks for having me back, first of all. Oh, but, um, geez, thanks for coming back. I, I, I forgot that thing, part. Thanks for coming back, Austin. Yeah, I guess <laughs> I guess the thing I'd say, you know, before we go, we, we should walk through the details of Build Back Better and the infrastructure bill, and we should think about inflation and all those things. I want to start, though, mm -hmm. by the sheer cheekiness of the Republican opposition and what they're saying to the bill. Let's just remember, Joe Biden ran for president, and he was actually quite specific in his policy promises when he ran. He, he, he had very detailed policy positions of what he called the Build Back Better agenda. And he said, I'm going to do all of these things, and I'm going to ask these people and these corporations to pay more taxes, to pay for this program. He said, 
quite specifically, this is what he's going to do. And he won by 7 million votes. And he took the House and he took the Senate and he took the White House. And now he's proposed something very close to exactly what he said he was going to propose. And I just find the whole notion that now we should have a huge objection to how dare he actually propose legislation to do this. This was exactly his mandate. It's it's exactly what he ran on. So I, I really don't understand th- that nature of the opposition. Um, now, that said, I guess I have a small beef with your with one part of your description. Okay, good. Which is, I don't think that the Relief Act, if you say, why is there inflation? I think there is predominantly inflation because we've had massive supply chain disruptions, and that is what's leading to inflation. And that's not really because of the CARES Act. I don't, I don't think that's, that's what led to inflation. And it's certainly the U.S. CARES Act didn't lead to the inflation that's happening in all the other advanced countries, too. You know what I mean? Okay. Okay. I what I, I was kind of going with some maybe either conventional wisdom or some bad conventional wisdom or some yes. conventional ignorance. But I was trying to do the bright side. Yes. Of it. Yes. We didn't have a depression. I mean, we yeah. <laughs> that that 2020 episode. There's a two month period in 2020 that is quite literally the worst six weeks in the history of the U.S. economy, worse than any period of the Great Depression, worse than the entire year, 1932. Uh, That March-April period was worse than that. The unemployment rate jumped more than it did in 1932, all of that. And that did not turn into a Great Depression. We're talking about March-April of 2020. Of 2020. Yeah, the beginning of the pandemic. And, And for that, I do think the policy response from Washington, which was, is it ironically? I don't know. Maybe I don't understand ironically, but interestingly, was done in a bipartisan basis. Um, I I think it was was really important. And it's sad that now what at that time seemed like a pretty unifying effort to confront a, a historic challenge has turned into the same partisan food fight that everything else has. Uh, but, you know, maybe that was inevitable. Well, it wasn't a partisan food f- fight when we were doing that because it needed to be done and Democrats were in the minority and helped at least. <laughs> right. And uh, yeah. And yeah, the, voted look, they for voted packages. for it. You're right. You're right. I mean, the, the main thing that changed is a Democrat became the president and where the Democrats, when in the minority, said, "Okay, we'll go along with uh, with uh, rescue," you know, on a bipartisan basis. Once the tables reversed, then it became the Republicans in the minority saying, "Well, why do we have to do all of this? Let's let's not let's not rescue." And it was passed in the Senate on reconciliation with only Democratic votes. And was it also only in, in Democratic votes in the House as well? I can't uh, remember. Right? Yeah, I think so. There, yeah. Maybe there was one, but I, I don't. I'm, I'm not sure. It was clearly 
an extremely hard fought, very narrow margin. But because of that, we've had the economy recover. And because of the supply chains being disrupted so badly during the pandemic, of course, of course, we have supply chain problems. And of course, of course, we have some inflation because there's less supply and more demand. I have my economics right on that, right? Yeah, you have the economics <laughs> right on that. Okay, good for me. And uh, and same with gas prices. And so let's talk about the elements of Build Back Better and the sort of negotiations that are going on, which is the negotiation between are we going to have a $1.5 trillion package a $3.5 trillion package or somewhere in between. And if they do it somewhere in between, how they should approach that. And also, what is the cost of not doing the 3.5? That kind of stuff. You're an economist, aren't you? Yeah, I am. Uh, or I, per, I, I play one, uh, you know, on, on podcasts. You know, as usual, Al, you, you have got a lot of content and a lot of important topics in that in that overview sentence slash question. So the build back better proposal. I mean we should say we we don't know exactly what's in it because it's not it's not specifically drafted. They're negotiating it. We don't we don't know what's in the final package. We know elements of it, which is like Medicare negotiating with pharmaceuticals. Yeah. It's climate, addressing climate. You know, child care, universal pre-K, child tax credit, you know, two years of free community college, uh, paid family medical leave, th- those kind of things. Medicare. Yeah, dental exactly under- right. Yeah, okay. And so, so you kind of got, you got an infrastructure package, which maybe there's some modest to significant amount of Republican support, or at least they have a, a bipartisan kind of a deal. They passed on uh, a, a, a very bipartisan infrastructure deal, which I knew would pass because if they didn't pass that, the Republicans would get no credit for any infrastructure, right. which they right. knew they had to get because they knew the Democrats would just throw it into this thing, right? Yeah, I, I, th- I think that's exactly right. Um, and then- there's the reconciliation bill that's only going to have Democrats vote for it. Right. And there it includes some healthcare things like Medicaid and expanding out Medicare. And it's got some things geared toward parents and families like the the child tax credit extension and paid family leave and some child care costs. It's got education uh, type Investments, right. as you said, uh, community college and Pell Grants. And, and pre-K. I mean, that's family pre-K, too. Early as, education. Yeah, yeah. And I would s- describe that, you know, they, they, they got in a spat over definitions of words and should that be called infrastructure or is that not infrastructure? And then that came up in the other infrastructure bill too. Should broadband be called infrastructure? What, what counts as infrastructure? I mostly view, for some accounting reasons, which we can talk about, and some just political reasons, there have been some areas that we've tended to neglect for a long time. And those areas, you know, maybe, maybe I'll make my, make my, let me speak my piece, a little side diversion on uh, on accounting 
and why I think it matters. Okay. The, U- the U.S. government operates on a different type of accounting than a regular business does. And at that point, a bunch of people are going to start laughing. Oh, what kind of accounting does the government run on? Well, the government runs on cash accounting, which is different from gap accounting. And in cash accounting, the primary way that it's going to be different than what a business would do center on things that are investments. Okay. So anything, and the things that are long lived. So cash accounting, basically you only count it as a cost when the money goes out the door. And so things that are future obligations like social security or Medicare, where we've implicitly made a promise to people, they think they're going to get paid. If the government was a business, you would have to say, you know, like if it's it's a pension, if you promise that you're going to pay these people when they retire, you have to put that on your, into your accounts when you make the promise, not just when the money starts going out. So a bunch of things like that, we're going to incur, those are debts, which don't count as debts. And then on the other side, if you buy a bridge that's going to last for 50 years or 100 years, a business depreciates those investments. So a business doesn't count it as an expense. If, they, if they're going to buy a, you know, 50, a building that's going to live for 50 years, they don't have to take off their earnings the entire cost of the building all in the first year that they buy it, they depreciate it. And so it's like they pay one fiftieth per year for 50 years. That's, that's kind of how the accounting works. Well, that's not how the government works. So investments that involve a big cost up front and then a payoff over a long period of time in government cash accounting, that's going to look tremendously expensive, and the benefits are going to be well down the line. And as a result, things like that get neglected. And that includes infrastructure, that includes early education, that includes all sorts of different investments that are important for raising productivity for giving people careers where where they're going to earn a living you know for for long periods of time and that that's kind of my side note my side chapter appendix or something about government accounting which i think explains why we've neglected a lot of these areas and that brings us to build back better in that the biden folks and biden himself know this problem. And when he ran for president, he was saying, here are areas I think we've neglected that we should have had more investments in. And so a lot of these are investments in those spaces. And I I think they're important. And we can argue about what should the total be. And we can argue about this one versus that one. And what would Joe Manchin be, would agree with? And what would Senator Sinema agree with? And, and, and that sort of thing. But at a fundamental level, the key thing that we ought to be deciding is, do you agree that these have been areas of neglect 
and that we should have been spending more in those areas on those investments? And do you think that high income people and corporations with their newly found uh, windfalls that came from the massive tax cuts they got in 2017, do you think that they should pay more and that we could in some longer term sense use the money to pay for those investments. Now, in my perspective, that seems like a good idea. Um, and the opponents, basically, they're back to the old tropes of, you know, we can't we can't raise taxes on on rich people because the rich people are what drives the economy and 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 tax cuts pay for themselves and tax increases. Are, okay, we, and we no know all that's that bullshit. And we know that's baloney. Now, now I saw a statistic that billionaires' net worth during the pandemic went up, their their net worth went up 55%. (laughs) That's a a good business model. And also, there were these huge tax cuts. And also, we know these billionaires pay very little in taxes. How how much of this is going to be paid for? In other words, if you say $3.5 trillion, people go like, oh, that's going to burn $3.5 trillion hole in our, you know, increase our debt by that. But it's not, right? I mean, there's no, there's, no, no, it's not. No. Absolutely not. And the, and they got in another one of these, you know, battle over words when President Biden said it's not going to cost anything because he was saying on net, big corporations, high income people are going to pay for that spending. So it's not going to increase the deficit. Are they going to pay for it? it was it at three point five? I mean, in other words, with every yes, it was supposed for? to look. And so, so then the then the argument then it became a whole argument of, well, is it going to pay for ninety eight percent or is it a hundred percent? And sh- how should you count things if they're outside the budget window? And look, all of those are details that we should work through. And we're missing the main thread, which is what you said. That size of the package is not how much debt would go up. It doesn't increase the deficit. For that, you got to subtract off the payment. And if we're in the world where we're going to describe this as a $3.5 trillion thing, even if it had a net cost of zero, then the Trump tax cuts should not be called $2 trillion. They should be called $5 trillion because they cut more taxes, but on net, they cut taxes by $2 trillion. What I'm saying is, like, if you invest in people's education, if you invest in pre-K, right? Yes. We all know that kids, your brain develops when you're young. I, I yes. think we should do early yes. childhood education, and the evidence is that kids who have early childhood education do better in school. They're more likely to graduate from high school. They're more likely to go to college, graduate from college, not go to prison, et cetera, et cetera. All of these things that we're talking about, I don't know if they pay for themselves, but they, right. I think they do. And, right. But, like uh, the social dividend of those investments is quite large. I mean, just take, take, the, take the, the one that's about college costs, okay? Um, if you could get someone to graduate from college, that increases on average, that increases their salary by about twelve to $15,000 per year for the rest of their lives. Um, that, like, that, that, in what sense does that 
cost us the price of, of the extra tuition. I, I, I think you're right. That's the wrong way to think about and, it. And that's, uh, we're talking about free community college. Of course, many kids who, or young people or adults who go take advantage of free community college then will go to finish their, their four-year degree, which is incredibly beneficial. And also, I love that people go like, well, you know, rich kids shouldn't be getting free community college. You, not that many rich kids go to community college. They just. Yeah, that's fair. That's a good, that's a absolutely fair point. And the, the numbers that I'm quoting, community college is really the unsung hero of the American uh, job training and, and mm-hmm. education system. The evidence is really strong and, and unbelievably good that the alternative for the people who could get an associate's degree at community college, the alternative for them not getting that degree is to go back into the into the part of the job market for people that have just high school only. And it's been a brutal multi-decade experience for people with high school high school graduate only in the job market. I mean, the, the community college training, there is no better jobs program than that. If you could get millions of people with extra associate's degrees, they can get jobs that they can't currently get. Workforce development was a, something I was very, very interested in and pushed yeah, a you lot. Were major, you were a leader on that. Yeah. I was just back in Minnesota for a while. I had breakfast with Eric Ajax who is uh, head of Eric Ajax and Sons. And he's, I think he's a son. <laughs> and his dad was a, a senior. And they would train up guys, have two years. I was on the floor of their factory, and they would put people through Hennepin County Technical College, Community College, and they would skill up. And I, I met guys who had been in the military, and had great jobs doing really complex stuff. I, I met a guy who had gotten out of prison, uh, uh, you know, did a, a drug thing, and he just bought his first house. I mean, it's just, it's yes. stupid not to do this. Yes, it just doesn't, <laughs> doesn't make sense to me. You know, as, as I say, the the returns, if you just look at what do people earn going to community college versus dropping out of community college or not going. Or dropping out because they can't afford if, it. If you look at that, that gap has never been bigger. The, the premium for getting those skills has never been bigger. And so you would think that this would be the golden age for community college because it's such a win. And yet, this is exactly the moment when the states are cutting back massively on education funding because it's one of the only discretionary things that they spend money on. You know, Tennessee, Tennessee gives free community college. Yeah, but so so the thing is <laughs> cutting back on Tennessee. community college right when it when it could benefit people the most. It, it just doesn't make sense. Now, you you do raise an issue that Tennessee, there a lot of the people going to community college already can get, can go for free. Um, you know, in in a lot of states or if with Pell grants, etc. Um, 
so so I, I do think we want to think more expansively than just uh, what's the overall price tag. You know, may, maybe that's a broader lesson for more than just education for the entire Build Back Better bill, whatever the final bill is going to be. But you don't think of Tennessee, you know. <laughs> I, feel, I feel like they're arguing a little bit about like, ah, should it be 3.5 trillion? Should it be 2.5 trillion? Should it be 1.5? To me, the ultimate size of that thing is not actually the main way that you should determine what, what should be in it. I would really like the discussion to be about the elements of it. So people aren't yes, just keep elements. hearing about the, oh, what, yes. what, what's going on with yes. the reconciliation? Because all it's called is a reconciliation package. 90 percent. <laughs> like, what the heck is that? Yeah, well, 90 <laughs> percent uh, of Americans want Medicare to negotiate with the pharmaceuticals. We right. pay two to three times right. as much for our pharmaceuticals as the Europeans do, as de other developed nations do. Right. Medicare, they all negotiate. <laughs> they all negotiate right. for the pharmaceutical, right. except us. So we're paying two to three times much on on pharmaceuticals that we manufacture, right? And right. that they manufacture just on everything. It's crazy that we do that. And the only people against that are the pharmaceutical company, of course. And and you know, screw them. And look here, now you're getting into a a space that holds true on every issue from financial regulation to pharma, how we treat pharmaceuticals to college, to Medicare, to everything, which is the second the average voter has their eyes glaze over and say, oh, I, I don't want to think about that. That is the exact moment that all the power just went to the lobbyists and to the people who really deeply care about the details of that issue. So if you say taxing carried interest of hedge funds, most people are like, I don't even know what that is. Or okay? private equity. Now, yeah, private equity. And so then as soon as the average voter is like, well, I don't even really know what that is. This is a thing that matters so much to private equity that they're going to spend ungodly amounts to prevent that loophole from being closed. And, and what that is, let's explain what that is, because what it is, is instead of taxing their earnings from that at normal income tax rates, they tax it at capital gains rates. Is that correct? Yeah. So it's like, it's basically capital gains taxes is supposed to be a tax rate on okay. something that you buy. And the value of the asset you buy goes up, and the amount it goes up is considered the capital gain. And you know it might not be a good idea, but for for whatever reason, we treat capital gains we, we tax them at ha basically half the rate. It encourages people to invest, right? That's the thinking behind it, right? And uh, you want to encourage capital. That's the thinking behind it. Look, there's a whole argument about that. But what happens with carried interest, uh, a lot of people say, is the private equity company or other companies are able to take their fees, which is fee income, which normally, if somebody's applying a fee, that would count as ordinary income, and they should pay ordinary labor income kind of rates on it. 
they're able through a loophole trick to classify that fee not as ordinary income, but instead as capital gains, and therefore to pay half the rate. And this has been a perennial battle where Democrats say, this is outrageous. We look at this. This loophole is crazy. There are even a lot of, of rich people who are like, yes, you know what? They are right. That is that yeah. is a loophole. Trump he said he it. was going to get rid of it in his first yeah, campaign. Yeah, Trump said he's going to get rid of it. Everybody says they're going to get rid of it. Because it's but wrong. Then when it comes down <laughs> to it, people don't know that much about it. And as, as much as you say it's wrong, you don't care about the issue nearly as much as the people who get that low tax rate care. And so they are just a dog with a bone. They will never give up. They will fight on the beaches. They will fight on the sand. They will fight in the streets. And and then in the end, they're like, well, how much money does it raise anyway? Let's go raise the money somewhere else. And that's true in pharmaceuticals. This is true in pharmaceuticals too. You know what I care about? I care about uh, income earned doing comedy. That should be taxed at a lower. <laughs> you, you should get that thing classified yeah. as some kind of a carried interest. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, yeah, because it's a different kind of inv- I mean, it's very different. I can make the argument for it, but not right here. We hey, we need more comic relief in the world. That's right. They there should you be are. subsidizing it. That's right. You should get tax credits for it. My God. Okay, let's keep going. <laughs> And not get- <laughs> They're going to take this. They're going to take it. For the transcript that goes to the National Archives, let me just say, please put that in the sarcastic font, <laughs> all of the previous <laughs> segment. That's right. Going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with Austin Goolsby. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset, hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. We're back with Austin Goolsby. So do, do we know how much of this is going to be paid for by taxes and on whom? Or, we ha- or that hasn't been written or what? Mostly, well, we know what the president called for, what he says he wants. Mm-hmm. He said he wants it 100% paid for by taxes on high-income people and large corporations. Now, as with every Washington thing, there are a bunch of maybe you'd call them accounting gimmicks, you know, various things where where it's it's like, well, we'll get revenue because we will put off counting this thing. And some of these they're going to push outside the budget window so they don't count. They're not as big. And this is a well-worn tactic. You saw it a hundred times, you know, in the Senate used by 
Republicans for tax cuts, uh, Democrats for uh, spending increases, you know. You know what was hilarious was when Max Baucus was chairman of the Finance Committee. Yes. And you'd come up to him and said, I need a pay for. I need something where I, I, I have a bill that costs $28 million, and I need you to find something where I can pay for it with uh, getting rid of a, a, a tax loophole that no longer is useful for really justifiable. And then he would go like, well, um, on in the out years, there's a 1.6 <laughs> tax cut for real estate investments that are held by a, this kind of corporation. Yes. And we can change it to 1.25%. <laughs> and yeah, exactly. that will uh, get you your, well, how much did you need? Uh, 25 million? Yes, that will give you 25.4 million. <laughs> he, he could do that. Yeah, he was probably good with Legos or something when he was a kid. You know what I mean? Of like, you, you're like, ah, there's the space. I gotta, I gotta find the Legos to fit in that space. He might have been the least effective speaker I've ever heard, but man, oh man, <laughs> did he know his job? Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so we we know that Biden wants to pay for it, and that's who he wants to do the paying. Mm -hmm. The thing that it seems like there's a question. Now is okay. Th there's opposition on two fronts that he's dealing with. Some are the the things that he wants to pay for. There are some Republicans opposed to them. We don't want to pay for education costs. We no, don't they're against almost parents. all. We don't want to pay for infrastructure. And then there are different Republicans. They don't want taxes to go up for high income people or big corporations. Mm -hmm. And so, if they have to scale back the spending side to get 50 votes in the Senate, that probably means that they would scale down the tax increase side. Um, so in a way, maybe that would make it more palatable for people on the margin, but I'm not, I'm not sure. But I, but I think that's the basic idea is pretty simple and it is what he said in the campaign. It's, here are five areas of neglect over the last 30 years that we should have been spending more on. And these investments would have a big payoff and would help parents and would help kids get an education, would help, you know, healthcare costs and et cetera. And who should pay for it are the people who've been having an epically good, I would say year, but it's not a year. Yes, they had a, you know, billionaires got a 55% increase in a year, but it's been an amazing 25 years, 35 yep. years. Uh, corporate profits at record levels as a share of the economy. Income growth astoundingly high for these uh, very high income people. And they got as big a tax cut as ever in the history of the United States on top of that. And the president, the former president of the United States himself is a billionaire who paid $700 in taxes. What, what, in what possible universe is this just the personification of the pathologies of the system, exactly what's wrong with the system is this. How could a billionaire be paying $700 of taxes and wide shares of people 
be advocating, no, no, don't change the system. That's fine. Uh, If you were to ask someone like Donald Trump to pay more than $700, it would damage the town, you know, to hear it because because he's he's so important. Uh, I, I just don't, I guess I just don't understand the premise um, other than they just don't want it because that's what Biden is for. It's greed. But look, I mean, what Biden was basically saying is, and what he said in his joint session of Congress was, these are things we haven't done that we have to do and that they're expensive but we can't afford not to do them. Right. These are all things you can't afford. You, we have to address climate. Right. I mean, we're screwed if we don't. And as it is, we're kind of screwed. But we're more <laughs> screwed if we don't. I mean, it's really, I mean, you can't look around you and look at the fires. and I mean, look at the temperatures and look at, it's, it's all happening. We know it's happening and you have to address it. And the child tax credit would reduce childhood poverty by 50% in this country. And I remember when, when Biden said that in his joint session to Congress, they were on a wide shot, and not one Republican applauded that. They just, he said, it'll cut childhood poverty in half, and they all went, hmm, let me see. <laughs> cut childhood poverty in half. No, 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 I don't like that. I mean, <laughs> uh, there was a uh, there was a there was an old Simpsons episode where uh, where Mr. Burns they they have all this <laughs> money on the floor and they're they're playing they're throwing it at, at, at each other and uh, and somebody says I will he asks him something about giving the giving money away he goes yeah I'll give it away when pigs fly but in a different scene they've launched a pig through the air mm-hmm. and. A pig flies by the window, mm-hmm. and he's just said, I'll give this money away when pigs fly. And then pig flies by, and he's like, I don't think I'm going to give the money away. I kind of feel like that sometimes. You know what I mean? If the, you, we, can, we can walk through on content grounds. Are these valuable investments? And actually, I think in their heart of hearts, if we weren't in a political context, uh, certainly historically, there would be bipartisan agreement. And certainly in the polling, there's big bipartisan majorities that support, let's help people pay for education. Let's help support kids. Let's early education to get kids out of poverty because it pays off on the back end. Let's try to get pharmaceutical prices and healthcare uh, costs more under control. Invest in the infrastructure and the backbone of, of the country. All of those are really popular. But despite the fact that in their heart of hearts, I believe they do think that those uh, investments are important. I think at the end of the day, when it says, but would you be willing to pay higher capital gains taxes for rich people to pay for it? They're like, no, I think I'll choose not to. And that that you're talking about the politicians, not Americans. I mean, Americans. Yeah by far want this stuff and they would like to see higher capital gains taxes and they would like to see you know higher uh, withholding taxes you know like why yes. is the cap where it is why why can't the cap I mean look to to, to your point I, I saw a poll that was fascinating 
in which, so they, they described several of the categories. They said, uh, Joe Biden's plan is that we would pay for this thing, this thing, this and this. How, what's the favorability? And it, it had a pretty favorable, you know, let, let's say it was 62%. And then they said, and what is your opinion if they did all of that and they raised taxes on high income people and corporations by $2 trillion to pay for it? And it, the approval went up. It didn't go down when they said that the, the people said, yeah. Wait, that's a good idea. <laughs> they should pay for it. And that is exactly what they should do. So of hearing course. that it came with tax increases made it more popular, not less. That's a that's great. And of course, of course, people are for taxing the wealthy. You know why? Because it's so hard in this country if you're not wealthy, if you're not affluent. It's just harder than it is in European countries where they have daycare, right? They this have safety net kind of thing. But look, it, it is, and I, I think that's true. And everybody knows that in 2017, they massively cut taxes for exactly the group that did not need a tax cut. And it remains the most unpopular tax cut in the history of American polling. Precisely because everybody understands what it did. They didn't pretend like it was something else. Everybody knew what it was. Well, they did. It was a huge tax cut. No, they did. For high income people. They they did pretend it was for, you know, working people. Yeah, and, actually, you're right. They yeah. did say, oh, everybody's wages are going to go up $5,000. Yeah, 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 yeah. And also, the C, you know, corporations would invest this. In job right. creating technology, you know, it, and they didn't. They bought back their stock and right. gave huge bonuses. Paid out dividends, paid out bonus. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, look, it's not to say when, when I was in the Obama administration, uh, I favored cutting the corporate income tax rate. I just wanted it to be done in a way that wasn't a huge windfall to existing corporations. Uh, I thought that they should do that by closing exemptions, deductions, and loopholes and use that money to reduce the rate modestly. And most corporations were were on board with that idea. And it kind of went back and forth. And the thing that changed was Donald Trump takes office and says, you know what? Um, let's just cut it by $2 trillion. Let's not, let's not actually make it revenue neutral. Let's not try to pay for it. Let's just give a windfall handout um, to the folks that I like. And that, I think, was the, that was the root of the problem. And fundamentally, that's what the voters want to reverse. You know, the, it doesn't have to go back to exactly what it was before the tax cut, but there's still a fundamental feeling of, did they really deserve or need a $2 trillion net tax cut for high-income people and big corporations when they already had the highest profit rate of all times? I mean, why? Is, is there equalization of, or, or at least paying for schools? Because so many schools are paid for by property taxes, right? Yes. That's the sort of number one determinant of how well your school is financed. Well, there's a difference if you're, living in, I don't know, Winnetka, Illinois, and if you're living 
in a very bad neighborhood in either a rural town or in a in a city. And yes. the property taxes determine the quality of your education. That it shouldn't be that way. And the kids who are growing up in in low income places need it more. They need it more. Their parents didn't go to graduate school. We know if a kid's parents went to graduate school, they hear a lot more words and there's more books being read. We, these kids need it. And this is just perverse. Yeah, look, the, the, you're, you're going at, the, 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 that's an issue that's determined at the state level and at the, at the local level. And you're getting at, you know, one of the most critical hubs of, you know, where does inequality come from? A lot of inequality comes from this, you know, that the, the school systems are so unequal in, in different places and they can kind of propagate the problems from one generation to the next of inequality that, you know, the rich places have the better schools. And so the kids do better and then they get the better educations and then they, they have even higher income, that is getting out of the purview of the federal government, though. You know, the the corporate income tax, in a way, kind of c- couldn't fix that problem because that's really a but, state. But he is talking about giving more money to equalizing K-12 through education. In other words, f- funding, federal funding for schools in poor neighborhoods. And to our previous discussions about post-secondary you know, community college and, uh, and other college affordability issues, those are places where the federal role is really quite substantial and, and can go to some of these, some of these same, the same issues. So uh, I think you're right. Biden is talking about how important that space is. I think it's hard to objectively say he's wrong. He's not wrong. He's, he's right. That whole space is critically important for income mobility in the United States, you know, across generations, across places. And it's one that everybody has given lip service. Yes, we're for it, but they just, they, ha- they haven't made those. I'll investments. tell a little story. I was putting my seven-year-old grandson to bed. This is about a year ago. And he was reading this Dr. Seuss book on the body. And they had an illustration of the body and had the organs in it, of all the organs. And he's he's looking at it, and he says, Grandpa, I would have to assume that there's some kind of tube between the kidney and the bladder. (laughs) Wow. Now, my reaction was, Oh my God, this is so unfair. <laughs> That's because I'm in public policy. I go like, oh Lord, both his parents went, you know, his dad's right. an attorney and his mom went to graduate school. And it's just, you know, there's data that by the time you're five years old, if your parents went to a graduate school, you'll have heard three million more words than a yes. kid whose parents didn't go past high school. And I'm just going like, we, we have to do something about that. And one yes. thing to do about that isn't to make sure that the, you know, a school they visit in Hopkins, Minnesota is just gorgeous. It's just right. gorgeous. They have, you know, a music, they have 
band instruments. They have labs. They have the arts. They have everything. And then you go to Edison High School downtown in Minneapolis, and they got, you know, barely the basics. Yeah, look, uh, uh, the uh, I'm not to take away. There's a lot of complexities in in if you're going to do school uh, equalizations, do you put yourself in a position where the implicit tax rate on the on the high income schools is so high that they don't want to make their investments? And the, you know, there's a there, economists have argued about, and education scholars have argued about what's the best way to do uh, school equalization for a long time. The broader point that there are millions of kids who are going to schools that are not adequate and the juxtaposition that there are millions of kids who go to really well-endowed schools where they have great opportunities, it's sad. The juxtaposition is sad, and it's a tremendously important area. You know, the from early education, as you as you were saying before, all the evidence says that these have the social payoff from $1 of investment is eight to 10 times what the initial cost is Mm -hmm. spread out over the life of the kid. And that's from their earning higher earnings and getting better jobs. And also they're less likely to go to jail and they're less likely to be dependent on the state for other things, less likely to go on Medicaid, all of these. The girls are less likely to get pregnant in adolescence. Less likely to get pregnant, exactly. You know, something on infrastructure, this is something I've always said that when a bridge collapses, a Mercedes falls as fast as a Hyundai. (laughs) that's true that's true didn't galileo say that (laughs) yes yes and he proved that (laughs) by dropping a hyundai and a mercedes from a tower but you know it's in all our interests to do this stuff it's in all our interests to have a skilled workforce it's in all our interests to make sure that kids totally right it's in all our interests this is what's stupid you know, uh, Paul Wallstone said, we all do better when we all do better. Yeah. Is it like the African proverb? You should take no comfort in the fact that my half of the boat is sinking. And <laughs> y- you shouldn't. You I didn't shouldn't. know that if you one. Got, if, you got, if you got a massive problem with upskilling the labor force in large portions of the job market, that's going to affect us all. That's going to, whether you like it or not, that's going to affect your retirement because- the wages that those people are going to earn is what pays for Social Security. Drives me crazy. Drives me crazy. Now, the one thing, <laughs> so w- when it comes down to the brass tacks of the Build Back Better, mm-hmm. and if it can't be the big package, and it has to be smaller to get 50 senators on board, how do we navigate that? In the sense that there's one group of people that says, just everybody take one third off of what they wanted and we'll just do all the same things. Mm-hmm. And there's a different crowd that says, let's pick two thirds of the things and fund them fully and let's just take one third out. And I don't know, I don't have a great say, you know, I'm a PhD in economics. What are you asking me? I can't f- figure something like that out. But how do we resolve that? Well, I think that some of the things 
you do one part of that and some of the things you do other parts of that. There's some stuff you might have to drop entirely. One thing I will say, though, this is one thing I'll say, but either way you go, let's get the stuff going fast. Right. Let's show people. I mean, that's, I think, really important. Let's get this going. Like, don't make it a 10 years from now something happens. No, let's get like these. get some out the door. Let's get them out the door so people see what it is. So people get yeah. the benefits. You know, they can see it before the 2022 elections. That's kind of my imperative. And to the extent that it affects what you're just talking about, I think yeah. we should keep our eye on that ball. But yes. yeah, and there's a chance, you know, do you do, some, do you do everything for five years? Or do you do half the stuff for 10 years? There's that kind of thing. Or do you fund it, as you were saying, at half and do it for the 10 years? I, I, I'm not sure. I, I think you take it piece by piece and, and right. try to figure that and out. Look, it's, it's always it's always comes back to the old uh, economic maxim. What does Joe Manchin think? And, uh, yeah. and, you know, the fact that Joe Manchin is from a big coal state, unfortunately, probably means that some of the most robust climate stuff. Well, here's they, what I they, think. That, that might be on the chopping block. You know what I mean? Except here's what I think. I, you know, when, when we did ACA, we had to do this kind of stuff, right? To get all, yeah. when we, we had no votes to spare at all. You know, you can, you can do something where you help West Virginia in a number of different ways. One of which is, okay, we can, I don't know, uh, you find way to sequester CO2, which I've never been a big fan of, but um, that's a technology that he's for so that you can use it. But coal isn't really going anywhere. I mean, it just isn't. Hmm. It's not. It's, it's more expensive than natural right. gas. It's not going anywhere, meaning it's not coming back in some no, robust no, way. No, no, yeah, no. Right. It just right. isn't. It just, I mean, and Joe has to know that. And West Virginia has to, has to find other stuff to do, you know. But, yeah, we had uh, a carve-out for Nebraska, you know, for Ben Nelson. Ben and, Nelson yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. We had some stuff like that. And I I swear to God, Joe wants to get something done. He does. Yeah, and now, I think that's right. The thing I actually am most worried about, and this is going to get done because it has to. I just mm -hmm. want it to happen sooner rather than later, and I want it to happen bigger rather than smaller. But one thing I do worry about, and this is a whole, this is not economist stuff. This is uh, election, this is uh, political scientist stuff, is we have to get the Freedom to Vote Act yeah, right. done because it's an existential threat. We're, we're on a glide path to losing our democracy if we don't get that done. Yeah. You know? The thing is, um, you know, this is another one of those where, if you look at mail-in voting, there's been a lot of research on mail-in voting. And over a long, longer period, it's not obviously in favor of one party versus the other party. So how that turned into a partisan battle, I, I, I guess I'm also on that, just kind of confused. Like, well, how, how did that become a well, the How most dangerous thing they're doing is giving state legislatures the power to overturn. <laughs> yeah, overturn an election. Could you imagine? Well, I mean, 
what what are we yeah i mean uh trump wouldn't have had to call raffensperger and tell him to find eleven thousand eight hundred and seventy votes he could have just told the legislature to reverse it Uh, i know this is like really scary yeah that's that's the i would say the break the glass moment but i mean that's that's the like i don't even know what you would call that moment it's that's it's uh a, the Weimar Republic uh, yeah, last right. years. Um I, not to compare anybody to anything in particular. Ixnay <laughs> 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 on the Hitler hey. <laughs> um uh, and that's serious. You don't do that. Uh, Stalin. Stalin. Okay, um <laughs> that's safe. That's safe. Uh so yeah, uh I think one thing we've talked about is let's make people understand what the pieces of this are instead yeah. of the reconciliation package. Cause you hear reconciliation yeah, yeah, yeah. package all and the time. And instead of just some number, it's not just a number here, you know, here are, here are six major things that it's doing. And every one of those six things, people say, yes, that's worth it. You know, we, we would pay w- w- the bang for the buck is high on each of those, you know, whether it's f- childcare, education, healthcare, infrastructure, uh, child tax credit. In a way, it's reminiscent of the argument back in 2008, 2009 about the stimulus, where at that time, everybody knew in December of 2008, when we have the first meeting with President-elect Obama, everyone understood that there was a choice and the choice was it could either be big enough to match in a way the moment of the how big the crisis is or it could be simple to understand and easy to describe but if it were that it would be smaller you know if it was just kind of one thing easy to mobilize around but it wouldn't be near big enough to to prevent a you know real serious depression and so they kind of went back and forth. And at that time, Obama said, we'll work on figuring out how to explain it, but we got to go big. Um, and I get some of the same vibes from this. You know, if, if you think about it, they could have picked just one thing and it would be in a way easy to explain that thing. Uh, but their fundamental argument they're making is that it's got to be more than just one thing. These are here are multiple areas where we've neglected and it was not smart to neglect them and so let's let's fix that. And of course Obama said let's go big and Mitch McConnell said we're going to make him a one-term president. In that same interview and we've talked about this before. Everybody seized on that McConnell said his main goal in the Senate was to was to make sure to Obama was one-term president. But the other thing he said was, and we realized that if we stuck together, then by definition, President Obama could never be a bipartisan figure. And that showed a certain evil genius because that was, that was, he was absolutely right. And if somebody didn't follow politics that closely, you'd be like, yeah, wait a second. He must, Obama must be a partisan figure because not, there's, he doesn't have any Republicans that want to support him. So he must be doing something extreme. Um, and the Democrats have not, have never really been able to, to 
impose that kind of discipline on each other. No, I mean, and, and, and that's where we are. That's why we are where we are. And we're at because we're at fifty instead of fifty-two or something. We are stuck in a yeah, place where 50 we fifty vetoes. I mean, if fifty people got a veto, it's hard to get something through. Yeah, and there is uh, no now. I and my listeners have heard this a million times now. I'm for a form of the filibuster, a modification of the filibuster not for ending it. And it involves a talking filibuster. And I think we may have to go there to get this uh, Freedom to Vote Act. And and it's something that I've talked to Joe Manchin about and something he's open to. I don't know. I don't know cinema, really. But um, it's going to come down to that because no Republicans are going to vote for that thing. Right? I mean, it's just not. Yeah. Seems like it. You know, I think it's easier to be an evil genius than to be a genius. <laughs> you know what I mean? It turns out. But what pays better? <laughs> evil evil turns out it pays much better. Yeah, it turns out <laughs> evil pays well. <laughs> but anyway, uh, thank you for, again, um, you know, explaining so much about uh, this piece of legislation which includes all of these different things and what they mean to the future and we'll, we'll see where it goes we'll see I hope we'll see soon Al it's always a thrill for me personally and uh, and we always have a good time well I, I hope you enjoyed uh, listening that beautiful music is by Leo Kotke the great Leo Kotke I want to thank Peter Ogburn for producing this podcast we'll talk again next week. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com slash survey. The early 2000s was a wild time for reality TV. There seemed to be an endless supply of shows that delivered entertainment for us, but trauma for children. I'm Misha Brown, the host of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop. Each week on The Big Flop, comedians join me to chronicle the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question, who thought this was a good idea? We recently looked behind the scenes of what was really going on at Abby Lee Miller's dance studio. Abby's biggest misstep wasn't screaming nonsensical catchphrases or throwing chairs on television, but instead, she was choreographing financial fraud in plain sight. Join me to break down all the wild details of Abby Lee Miller's story. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Big Flop early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. Once upon a beat, remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuse, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the New Kids and Family Podcast, 
once upon a beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's once upon a beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat.